Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years, and we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. If you enjoy the positive and educational content we provide, please let others know by sharing, commenting, and following so that you can join in on everything that Silvercore stands for. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of the Silvercore Club and community, visit our website at silvercore.ca. So a few weeks ago, I was fishing with my buddy and fishing guide, Pat Bien, and he helped me hook into my very first steelhead on the fly. And it was amazing. Had so much fun and the fishery there is catch and release and that's completely foreign to me because i'm used to catching a fish if it's legal size you bonk it and you go home and eat it and that's that's what fishing has always been to me so i had a whole bunch of questions about catch and release and what's happening with these fish afterwards and the effects of uh, the catch and and he says you know i got some answers trav but what you should do there's this really cool guy i've done some fishing with him in the past. He's done a lot of work on the subject. He's a biologist and he's a researcher out of the University of Massachusetts. And you really should reach out to him. So without further ado, welcome to the Silvercore podcast, Dr. Andy Danilchuk. Hey, thanks Travis. Wonderful to be here. Yeah. So Pat was giving me some insight and amazing guy, by the way, he's got so much energy, so full of life. And I, uh, absolutely love fishing with him. And as a fishing guide, I'm going to put in the plug since he is a fishing guide. If you ever have the opportunity to go out with Pat, absolutely take that up. He's, uh, he will make your day. That's a guarantee. Absolutely. He's a, he's a kind soul too. He's got like a heart of gold and, uh, yeah, I could not agree more. It's just awesome. To be totally. Here. So he was, uh, he was telling me a little bit about your history and what you do, but maybe it's better coming from you than from me third hand through Pat. <laughs> so how did, how do you, what is it that you do and how did you get into it? All right. Well, uh, so right now I'm a professor of fish conservation at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Uh, I've been here since 20, 2009, um, and it was kind of a, you know, it's never a straight path, right? So like it was a very long, circuitous route to get here. But my origins, I grew up in Southern Ontario, uh, just outside of Toronto. Nice. Uh, and uh, yeah, and in the suburbs, not nice. <laughs> good, but, you know, good Canadian <laughs> boy. Sub- you got that going for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but growing, in this, growing up in the suburbs uh, was interesting for sure. Um, but, um, you know, back, uh, I guess my, my connection really to, to fish and nature and what got me really going, um, on, on this path was back when I was five years old, you know, I was, I'm the, um, the fourth in line in, in kids in my family and, uh, I'm the youngest, um, you know, maybe I was a mistake, who knows? (laughs) Um, but, uh, but, but when I, when I came along, you know, my parents, were um, excited to, you know, they saved up their money, total like suburb blue collar family. Um, and my dad was pretty adventurous and he put us on a plane and uh, we went to Andros Island in the Bahamas. And that oh, was nice. in uh, 19, 1973, like super remote. You know, it was my first trip anywhere. I was five. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and uh, my dad stuck a mask on my face and kind of shoved me in the water. And I was just like, oh my God, look at this. It's like the diversity is beautiful. Check out all these fish. They're barracuda. Mm -hmm. They're not actually going to eat me. <laughs> you know, it's really cool. Um, and that, you know, and that, that kind of planted that, that initial seed um, in terms of this connection to the water and fish. And then uh, when I got back to Southern Ontario, um, you know, that there were opportunities for me to, to start to go fishing. And um, I went to uh, a relative's trout pond and uh, had this like cobbled together fishing rod with like an elastic <laughs> band around the real seat. It was like, I think it was seven or something like that. And, um, and, and I, you know, these, these fish were like fed, right? Mm -hmm. like, like the relative went to like the local bakery and got all the day old breads yeah. and like throw them in these cookie these dough and really fat. Yeah. They were, they were, yeah, they were really plump and I didn't know mm -hmm. that. Um, and so, you know, I casted out this lure and the thing just like ripped the reel off the reel seat and it exploded. And, um, and that sort of opened my eyes up to like how powerful fish are and, how cool. And we landed it and I got to see it. And I was just like, wow, this thing is like pretty amazing. Um, and you know, it, it made me realize that, that there's this really neat connection to fish that we can have. Mm. Um, and you know, and then growing up again in the, in the suburbs as a teen, um, I wouldn't say that I was perfect, uh, <laughs> but, um, certainly, um, you know, and my family was, was pretty, um, turbulent at the time. Sure. And I found a, a really, a really good friend and his family who had a cottage, uh, in, um, in out near George Empire, just, um, just, uh, not too far from Georgian Bay. Okay. And, okay. and so we started bass fishing and fishing for pike and spending a lot of time on the water. And, you know, that's when I really started to, you know, fishing became like a therapy, right. Mm. And, getting in the water and, and even seeing what you're fishing for first and then going fishing for them. That is so cool. Um, you know, and, and then I, and then I got to, um, you know, my, my undergraduate and started to learn, you know, and I fell in love with fish, fell in love with the environment and then started to learn about how poorly humans are handling fish, dealing with fish in the aquatic environment. You know, I grew growing up around the great lakes in the seventies and eighties. It's like, that's the peak of, you know, super fun sites mm -hmm. and pollution and PCBs and all that stuff. And, and I remember starting to go fishing to some of the uh, other lakes in Southern Ontario. And, um, you know, the, the ministry gives you this, this handbook that's this thick mm -hmm. and you have to flip through it. You find the lake and it shows you all the different color codes of like, whether you should eat the fish out of this lake, which species, what size, if oh, you're pregnant, man. don't eat any of them, Gross. you know? And I was like, how could we, how could we love fish so much and, and get so much out of fish yet be kicking the crap out of their environment? Mm. And so that kind of really, really started to, you know, because I fell in love with fish and the environment, you know, I wanted to kind of use my energy and interest to kind of protect what I love. Right. Sure. And so that, that was kind of that path that I went on for my undergraduate and my, my graduate degrees. Um, and I, I did my undergraduate at Trent in Ontario and my PhD at University of Alberta. Nice. Um, and all looking at like impacts of different things on fish populations. Okay. Um, and after, you know, after freezing my, my ass off in uh, Alberta, you know, at Edmonton <laughs> for five years, 
Um, then I had a, um, a job posting put past me and it was for a position in the Turks and Caicos islands in the Bahamas. And I'm like, can't say no, I'll try it. Why not? He can't say no to that. Can't say no. Yeah. So, so I ended up, you know, uh, I, I didn't think I'd get the job. I got the job and, and then landed in the Turks and Caicos islands. And that's when I really started to focus on recreational fisheries mm. prior, prior to that, it was in 2000 prior to that move. A lot of the fish species that I worked on were like fathead minnows and mm. pumpkin seed sunfish and things that you could sample a lot of, things that were still important to the ecosystem, um, but that weren't really, um, you know, targeted by recreational anglers to any great extent. Right. Um, and, but then when I landed in the Turks and Caicos Islands, I had a friend there expose me to bonefish and I was like, holy crap, like this is like, it was, the, the environment was amazing the um uh, the the fish was like the power of that fish um and i and i completely fell in love with the flats and then as a scientist right because my progression as a scientist sort of uh increased in my knowledge and i started to think about like okay so i'm watching this bonefish that i'm releasing it's a catch and release fishery mm. and i'm seeing all these sharks around and i'm seeing sometimes a shark eats one and sometimes a shark doesn't and I started to look into the scientific literature in terms of like, what do we know about handling practices on bonefish? And back then, I think that was in 2001 or 2002, we didn't know anything. Um, okay. And so that just, and, and that just, I started to dig into the literature more and started to recognize that um, this whole idea of um, the recreational fisheries as one a very important economic engine mm -hmm. uh is it, i think is is understated and two that um there was then just a uh the beginnings of science that was used to allow anglers to understand how to better handle and release fish for those fish they, they want to release with because the outcome of that event is like we want the fish to swim away to, to be caught another day, to go back to spawn and do whatever, sure. right? And um, and then when you start looking into the numbers a little bit more, um, more fish are actually released in recreational fisheries than caught, uh, than, and then than landed, than harvested. Um, and then that kind of opened my eyes up more to the, to the magnitude and the importance of this development of best practices for catch and release and also to make sure that they're science-based. So... Since that time, you know, for the past 20 some odd years now, uh, my research has a good part of it has focused on sort of using science to and the scientific method to um, figure out how fish are responding to different handling techniques and then how we can use the science to um, to de develop these best practices that we can put back into the hands of anglers. Right. So. We always, you know, talk about and hear about the effects of commercial fishing on fish populations. Uh, what effect, mind you, there's always regulations being put in around, uh, recreational fishing and the recreational fishers say, Absolutely. you know, we're, we're not, we're not even making a dent on this. Look at all the commercial people. Look at what they're doing. Is that true? Like w what is the impact of recreational fishing on fish populations? There, there's a lot of push pull there, and and it really depends on the species, and it depends on the location. Um, there was a, a paper that came out in I think it was the early 2000s by a colleague John Post at, at um, University of Calgary called the Invisible Collapse, 
Um, and that to me was also a very pivotal paper uh, in terms of my evolution of a, as a scientist because um, they had a lot of these case studies where uh, because we weren't monitoring these recreational fisheries to any great extent, we couldn't actually see the fact that they were declining uh, because anglers are so passionate about what they do. Uh, participation rates are increasing. Mm -hmm. You know, even if our even if our catch rate goes down a little bit, you know, we've invested a lot in our in our rods and the trip, and we're still going to go out and fish. <laughs> and you know, it, it might take five years or six years to realize that. Wow, you know, like when I first started coming to this lake, I was catching you know ten lake trout in a week, and now I'm catching two. There's something going on. Mm. Um, and and I think that you know that um, that time was pivotal in terms of a, an awareness an increase in awareness that recreational fisheries can have an impact um, in, uh, and that it's, it's also something though that we don't necessarily need regulations to get a handle on when it comes to the best practices for catch and release. Right. Um, and, and, I, and, and I often also, um, you know, when I, <laughs> I often give presentations at angling clubs and there's, there's one that I remember so distinctly, it was uh, on the coast of um, uh, Connecticut, and uh, it was at a surf casting club. And most, and you know, I put up my big, you know, PowerPoint presentation. First slide is like best practices for catch and release, and I could see. And these are all like meat fishers, right? right? And I could see them all. As soon as I put that up, I could see them all kind of slump and be like, <laughs> "I'm not going to listen to this hippie, right? Yeah. Like, I don't do that. I, I." So I, I, I broke the ice right away and I said, okay, I, I, so how many people here, you know, kept, you know, go fishing for striped bass to catch to keep? And they all like put their hands up. That's oh, me. Mm. And I said, great, that's cool. And then I said, okay, so, and then how many people voluntarily practice catch and release just from a conservation ethic? And there's like a few people that put their hands up. And I said, cool. So for those people that, um, that try to harvest striped bass, it was a regulation. So what happens when you catch an undersized fish? They're like, oh, well, we, we put it back. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. And so what, what do you hope happens to that undersized fish? Oh, I hope it like grows to be a keeper and all that stuff. I'm like, okay, so one, you practice catch and release. <laughs> yes. And two, obvi obviously the, the way that you handle that striped bass or whatever fish it is, is going to affect its fate, right? And, and, it, and it doesn't take a regulation. It takes subtle changes in behavior and maybe just... Uh, more personal responsibility in terms of making those changes, and and I think that goes back to that the, uh, the question you had about this push pull between commercial fisheries and and recreational fisheries. You know, there's a lot of species that that recreational anglers fish for that aren't commercially fished, mm. right? And so, you know, when you look at the the status of those populations, you know, you yes, there's other big impacts happening. There's climate change and there's habitat and all these other things that are affecting our fish populations. But, you know, if, if you're focusing on a species that where there is no commercial fishery, um, you know, then those recreational anglers that are interacting with those fish, man, we got to start, you know, increasing our, uh, uppering our game in terms of the, our, our, looking at our role in terms of taking care of those, those, um, those fish populations. So as a scientist, how do you go about yep. measuring and looking at the effects of, of recreational angling. Now I know you were, you were up in the Bulkley a few years ago and, uh, yep. a friend of mine, April Vokey, I think, uh, you guys did a couple of podcasts together on some of this and I, I yep. heard some pretty cool stories as well about this, but I'd, I'd love to hear, uh, 
the process of how you go about sure. actually gathering that research? Yeah, and 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 actually that that um, project we did on the Bulkley River on on Steelhead is actually a great example because uh, the process begins with the questions, and the questions for that project didn't come from me. Like mm. uh, scientists, we can uh, yes, I'm an angler too, <laughs> and I could dream up all these great I could dream up all these great questions to try to address mm. that I think would be beneficial to the fishery, but it was actually. It, it was actually the folks in the Bulkley River Lodge uh, that approached me and also some folks from different different parts of the community up there started to ask um, questions about if if these steelhead are that important and that val valuable, how can we potentially change our um, handling behaviors to increase the chances that they're going to swim away mm -hmm. to, to spawn, to be caught another day? Um, and so I, I went up to do a, uh, a scouting mission. I, I went up and, and um, first met actually with the, the First Nations, with the Wetsuit and Wetton, mm -hmm. uh, because it was all on their land. So it was great to have that um, connection and, and to basically um, get their permission mm -hmm. for, the, for the study. Um, and then I met with, uh, I, they kept changing the acronym for the BC Fisheries Forest. Oh, they're still changing so confusing. it. Yeah. Flynn yeah. Roar or um, whatever but, it is now. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so I, I met with, so I went around and I basically talked to people and, and uh, well, I, I didn't, I did less listening or less talking and more listening, okay. right? I asked questions um, to understand the importance of Steelhead to that community, to the larger community, um, and to start to um, uh Think about the, the uh, dial into some of the questions that were um, that were coming from the guides that were coming from the community about you know post release mortality uh, is it is it better to uh, one of the questions that came up is it better to net a fish or is it to, better to, to tail grab sure it, um, in in terms of the handling mm -hmm. um, and then what happens to those fish after you release them mm -hmm. and so based on based on that. Um, uh, that initial um, trip, um, I was able to then, you know, get a whole bunch of different non-government organizations, industry partners to sign on and say, listen, we're, we're we put, you know, had some colleagues from Carleton University. I collaborate a lot with um, a friend from there, uh, a great friend. And uh, we, we basically created a, a, a team of scientists and uh, government agencies and, and non-government agencies um, and industry partners to to do this to do the study and to actually fund it, right? Um, and and because and and because everybody had an investment in it, um, they felt that the project was theirs. You know, they mm. they had a stake in the game. Um, and then following that, in terms of our experimental design, uh, what we did is we worked with anglers. We we t we put luckily we had some great graduate students that spent a lot of time up on the Bulkley River, um, it, basically following around people fishing for steelhead. Um, so, and sounds rough. We, uh, yeah, <laughs> sounds rough. And, uh, and you know, again, for as much as uh, we all like to fish, for as much as we'd like to catch all these fish, it doesn't make sense. We're, we're there as scientists. Right. And, and also that engagement with the anglers is super important because we can start to tell the story mm -hmm. behind the science. We can start to share our knowledge and we can also get more questions from them mm -hmm. that can shape future studies. And so 
we started to do uh, work where we looked at um, blood physiology. So a lot of um, the science that we do look at how this is not a steel. Sure, sure. It's a trout. Um, you know, and, and so we, we, um, we take some non-lethal blood samples to look at how physiologically stressed the fish is um, to, uh, to being angled uh, and handled. So you catch a fish and you, yeah. uh, you, what, you stick a needle in and you take some blood or? Yeah, quick, quickly, exactly. Quickly turn it over. Um, we use a, a, um, it's a non-lethal blood sample. Uh, we basically put the needle into the caudal peduncle we, we, um, or the wrist yep. sometimes you call it, uh, and uh, take a small blood sample. And then we have meters uh, in the field where we can actually look at uh, blood lactate um, and blood glucose, which are kind of the main things that we look at as indicators of that stress response related to, to the fight. So, so um, that's, that's basically just sugar and lactic acid or the, the big ones? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so blood and blood lactate is um, a uh, byproduct of anaerobic muscle activities. Your muscles mm. are working and and then uh, you get the buildup of blood lactate, um, which is uh, eventually a trigger for sort of that muscle fatigue, that cramping. Mm -hmm. um, and then blood glucose is that that fight or flight reaction. Right. So our what happens is um, and it happens to fish. It happens to us in a scary event. Um, you know, your, your liver, um, releases, uh, sugar and it, you're on a sugar high yeah. and that fuels that it, it fuels that fight. And so, and we can look at those, um, physiological parameters and tie that back into the elements of the angling event. And so, and, and what the anglers I think eventually realize is that we're watching them really carefully. We have a stopwatch. We know when the fish has been hooked up. We know how long it's fought for. We know the, we take a recording of the water temperature, we look at where it's hooked. We look at how it's, if it's bleeding or not. We're also using at more and more, um, these things called reflex impairments. Um, and so, uh, as, as, as sort of global metrics in terms of how well the fish is doing mm. and some of the reflex impairments, I'm not sure if you've noticed it. Um, one, one big one is if, you know, if you turn the fish upside down, mm -hmm you know, how long does it take to roll back over? Right. And that's sort of the coordination, the coordination of all of its, its fin movements. Okay. Um, and another one is if, um, so it's, it, I'm not sure if you've noticed it, but if you, if you take a fish that's used to swimming like this and you kind of put it on its side, its eye tries to track the horizon and it tries uh. to track. And, and if, if that uh, reflex is lost, that fish we've seen, shown some other studies that that fish is like, not in good shape, but there's a whole series of different reflexes that we measure that are linked back to the blood physiology. So this is like an APGAR um, test that, for fish. It, yeah, it is. It there is. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, and those those reflex impairments are neat because we can tie them back into the physiology. We can tie them into the post-release fate when we track fish, and I'll get to that in a second. But then those reflexes are important because you don't have to be a rocket scientist to use them. We can put right. those reflexes back out into the hands of anglers and say, listen, if you, you know, if you're, if you're questioning whether your fish is ready to go or not, mm -hmm. if you look for reflexes X, Y, and Z, and they're all there, then, then the fish is ready to go. Um, Interesting. And so it, it gives, it gives us clues in terms of how we can adjust our behavior um, to ensure that that fish, uh, when it does swim away is, has the best chance of survival. Um, and then, and then going back to the Bulkley river study, often what we do for a subset of fish 
is we uh, will then put transmitters on them. Okay. Um, and and so on the Bulkley River, we used um, radio telemetry. Um, so a, a subset of fish had radio transmitters put on them. And then we were able to track their, sh their short-term positions um, and then also track long-term, like into months after they've been released and to see how far they've gone. Did they make it up to their spawning grounds? Uh, were there any... Um, sort of acute effects early on, and then ultimately were there any, any longer term effects. Um, so we have all these different tools in the toolbox that we use for our catch and release studies, whether it's, you know, it's, um, steelhead uh, on the Bulkley River or bonefish in the Bahamas, or, um, you know, we've just finished up a, um, going back to blood lactate, mm -hmm. uh, we just finished up a great study, a very short study on, um, on milkfish uh, in the Seychelles. Um, and because it, and, 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 and that, um, study was based on a question that came from, um, some guides at the Alphonse fishing company, and also something that shows up in the, in social media, like every six months where it's like milkfish can fight so long because they don't produce blood lactate, mm. which when we went, that was the hypothesis right. that's what comes up in social yeah. media and then as biologists we're like absolutely not it can't there, there's no vertebrate that does right. that uh yeah unless they're like some alien species <laughs> uh like not 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 invasive alien right. but like from another planet right. um and so and we thought okay well we have the tools let's go test it um and so we use sa the same blood physiology um uh techniques um and we were able to demonstrate that Milkfish do indeed produce blood lactate, um, sure. but there's something there's something different in terms of how they can recover, which I think leads to some of the longer fight times. So mm. um, it, it's nice because these these tools are are quite universal. Um, you know, we've we've we can use them on lots of different species, and if we continue to look at how um, different elements of the angling event lead to different fates. For fish, mm -hmm. then we can feed it back into those best practices. Mm -hmm. And this is where really, and this is where, you know, kind of keep fish wet comes in. Right. Where, um, you know, <clears throat> as scientists, we end up writing these scientific, I wanted to see if I had a printed copy around here. You know, <clears throat> we end up because of our expectations of, of academia, mm -hmm. you know, we, we publish in scientific journals that are usually the journal articles are usually really long and boring. Yeah, no, no anglers going to read them. Behind, no, and they and they tend to be behind paywalls. Oh right. Um, so it's not they're not even they're not even free to access. And so you know the 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 niche that that keep fish wet is filling and squarely filling across um, all different species is basically taking that science because we're all you know science scientists as part of keep fish wet the core and when we're translating that science to make it more accessible and and to use the science to um, basically develop these science-based principles and tips mm. that anglers can use to essentially you know improve the outcome for each fish they they try to release or they plan to release so i'm there's a number of things you brought up and I'll, I'll see if I can, uh, recall in somewhat in, in the same order, but <laughs> no the, the one that really. And feel free to, feel free to cut <laughs> me off anytime too. I know I can get, I can start to ramble. So just. Oh, like you got a ton of information that, that 
I, I get it. I get it. Um, so the, those telemetry devices that you'll insert into the fish, that's interesting for a yep. couple of reasons. Like number one, uh, from your perspective as a scientist, it, it'll show kind of if they're staying alive, if they're going out, if they're getting eaten, if, uh, what kind of where they're moving. And from an angler's perspective, you can probably get some real insight into, um, maybe, uh, best places and best way to start angling for these fish too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a challenge too, that, um, uh, sometimes we have to be careful about where we, when we're publishing, right. uh, information in the scientific literature about where these fish are migrating and moving to right. there is there is sometimes in those scientific publications and especially for if the questions that were um, the foundation for the research came from from rights holders and stakeholders and user groups we don't want to be giving all this information away um so you know sometimes our at least the positions and stuff right so that sometimes in our scientific studies you know the bubbles that we show in the figures and stuff like that are a little bigger. So you can't quite figure out where yeah, that's sort of the, <laughs> the best spot is to fish more. The dilemma <laughs> and the dichotomy of, of what you're doing. You're, you're trying to help the fish. Absolutely. But in the same breath, somebody could look at that whole research. And if you are very specific in what you're doing, they could very specifically target what they're looking for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and especially if, we're, if you're, the science is showing that you know, a certain size fish, bigger fish are earlier in a run or, um, you know, seasonality related to movement. Um, yeah, we, we, uh, we definitely acknowledge that and are, we try to be as careful as possible mm. because we don't want to, we don't want to alienate anglers. We're again, going back to this fact, like the, most of the people that do the catch and release science, like we all start, we all grew up fishing, right? right? And we, you know, we, we all have, we all have pictures of us back in the day, like with our bass out and with, with our pike, with our pike, with our fingers up the gills uh -huh, yes. that we're not eating, that we're putting back, yeah. right? But we're like, Arr. or the big one where you've got your, your, you're holding your pike by the eyeballs oh, like, yeah. and they're like, oh, I'm going to let it go. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> well, you're talking about the different um, groups that are involved here. And if Bulkley River Lodge was involved in bringing you in, that's, uh, Yep. both really smart and I would say probably really brave, right? I, really smart because yep. they're trying to get in front of any regulations that come through by having solid science behind it and really brave mm -hmm. insofar as the science might not match up with their expectation or outcome. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, and I, I, I actually, when we're having initial conversations with uh, whether it's the folks from Buckley River Lodge or the same, the same scenario sort of happened with the Alphonse Fishing Company in, in the Seychelles, you know, I, I front and load it and I say, our, sci our science may show something that you may not like or you may have to adapt mm. to. Are you, are you okay with that? Mm. And, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't come across a group yet, maybe I will one day, that that said, no, we're, we're not okay with that. We don't want to do the science anymore because, you know, they're the, the, the business model for the Buckley River Lodge is like the steelhead need to be right. There, right. The business model, the business model for Alphonse fishing company is that the, the giant trevally and the milkfish and the bonefish need to be mm. there. And, and for a long time. Mm. Right. And, you know, when you start talking to a lot of folks, uh, I start to hear a sentiment more and more that, you know, yes, the anglers are clients, but you know, the fish are like clients too. I've heard right? that. Like the fish, right? So like, I got to take care of that, that client in the water. If, if I don't have fish to target, 
then I'm not going to have anglers wanting to come and fish with me, you know? And so that's, I think that's where I've seen, um, a lot of, it, uh, more attention come even outside the fly fishing world. Yes. A lot of the stuff that we've been doing, um, or that we've been talking about today is fly fishing focused, but you know, there's, uh, we've done a lot of work on species that aren't targeted by fly anglers. And, and I think because, uh, there's a greater awareness these days. I, I hope, I think there is mm. about the fate of, of the, the long-term fate of fish populations. And I think there's a growing awareness as well in that for as much as we, we hope that there can be policy changes and changes in regulations, we've, we're realizing that, that like to help protect fish stocks, whatever the species is, you know, that's, that's moving a big rock up a steep mm. hill, right? Mm. And, and sometimes you're pushing a lot to change those regulations. And that could be five years, 10 years. Those regulations may not ever change the way we want them to because there's also a political lobby that comes right. in that could potentially influence the changes and steer us away from science-based or evidence-based uh, knowledge that could guide those regulations. And I think that's where more and more people are. And, and this is, again, where uh, Keep Fish Wet comes from is that like, as we're waiting for those policy changes that can and management changes and, and regulation changes that can take a long time, um, why not take better care of each fish that you're handling? Right. Right. And there's there's no there's no downside. Right. Like if you're going to if you're going to if you're going to release a fish, whether it's under it, whether it's you're targeting to catch and keep and whether it's undersized or the wrong species. It still plays a role in the ecosystem. It still may grow and you might catch it and harvest it later. Or if you're practicing catch and release, every fish that you handle that, that you're going to release, um, you know, has value mm. and, um, you know, and and that uh, intrinsic value to everybody sure, that likes to sure. go fishing, but also economic value. Yeah. And, you know, if, if we ignore that personal responsibility maybe this is me and a bit more of a soapbox but if we ignore that personal responsibility and keep pointing fingers at you know the the regulators the regulators got to change but i don't have to change that we, we can kiss our fisheries goodbye right. Right? too often people um, co-opt all of their responsibilities onto a third party like that and that's it just seems to be the trend as of late and you were saying earlier that it doesn't necessarily need a regulation change in order to be effective, but more a general adoption of best practices. Is that where keep fish wet is trying to make that change? A absolutely. And, and the fact too, that, you know, uh, a lot of the principles and tips that, that have come out of the science uh, of catch and release, mm -hmm. really hard, difficult things to enforce. Like if a, a regulator's not going to, yes, maybe like in for striped bass, circle hooks, if you're fishing for bait, that's easy to enforce mm. for certain species like tarpon in Florida, um, you know, above a certain size, you can't take tarpon out of the water because it causes physical damage. You know, those things are, are relatively easy to enforce. I'm not saying they're enforced all the time, mm. but if, if, um, if it's really hard to think about all the different tips like minimize air exposure, reduce handling time, uh, you know, avoid rough surfaces. Those are the three main principles that Keep Fish Wet uses. You know, it's really hard to think about those as something that a regulator, a, a, a state agency or federal agency can put in regulations 
and then actually enforce right because there's so many people out fishing there's so many people doing different things there's not enough conservation agency or agents on the water to to actually do that so it's it's kind of it 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 really goes back to changing social norms right and how we as an angling community regardless of whether you're a fly angler or a gear person or you're harvesting or practicing catch and release from a, a conservation ethos how we look at our collective responsibility mm-hmm. um, for those those fish that we're going to be releasing and how we can make subtle changes in our behavior um, to, to basically say, listen, we're doing the best we can. It's not our, we're, we're, we're contributing to the solution, right? Um, and, and we'll continue to have a large voice when it comes to changing regulations and we'll have a large voice when it comes to other things that are happening, whether it's habitat or climate change, but at least we're, we're providing, uh, we're helping those fish populations be more resilient mm-hmm. by practicing science-based best practices for catch and release. So, um, so, you, so it's, you're going out and you're sampling different, you're, you're targeting specific types of fish in particular areas and looking for similar kind of outcomes on there. Is there sort of like a blanket rule that you can just sort of apply to them all or like, did, is it very important that you take a look at all of these different species and, and, uh, look at the subtle differences? No, that's an awesome question. Um, you know, I think there are, uh, species specific differences. Okay. Um, and, and the science is getting there. We're, we're working away at addressing more and more species specific differences, but if you distill it all down, um, the, the, um, a, a big rule of thumb for air exposure is 10 seconds or less is best. Okay. Um, if you look at all the different, if you look at all the different studies, uh, that have uh, quantified the impacts of air exposure on uh, post-release behavior and survival, 10 seconds or less is best. The gold standard is you don't take the fish out of the water at all, and you can still get a wonderful shot, you know, if you're, and, and this is where, you know, it involves creative photography. You don't need a dome lens. <laughs> you can have your fish in the water. Do you always have to have your face in the picture? Can you have your hands? Mm-hmm. You know, it, I think there's some, we we actually, Keyfish Wet provides a lot of information about you know, creative ways to, to take a photo when the fish is still submerged. Mm. But if you do, if you, if you are going to say you're, you're really, you've caught that prize steelhead and you want to take it out for, you know, a couple set to get that photo, um, let the, let the, uh, the person with the camera call the shots and it's like, get, let the person get the camera ready. It's three, two, one lift, click, and it's in the water and it's 10 seconds or less. Um, and, and that's, I think, uh, an important guideline. Yes, there are some species that you can leave out air exposed for longer. Yes, there are other species that um, are way more sensitive. And, and the, the, the complexity there, though, is that some species are more sensitive at certain times a year than other times a year, depending on water temperature, depending on water flow. And so if we, if we actually had some sort of matrix of all these different species and when they're more susceptible to air exposure and when they're more susceptible to this, it'd be way too hard sure. for anglers to follow. Sure. We, it would be hard for us to follow. Mm. So it's, it's best from, from a precautionary standpoint um, and in terms of our, our, um, our way, uh, the way that we think about uh, conservation that you know 10 seconds or less for air exposure um, is, is, is best. Okay. Um, and I think that is something we can use, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's steelhead or striped bass or largemouth bass or whatever. Um, the, 
The second um, kind of uh, main principle is sort of avoid hard surfaces, okay. right? Fish have, you know, a slime coat on them. They have scales. They have slime on them to prevent disease. Mm. They have slime on them to make them more hydrodynamic. Um, and, you know, anytime that you're dragging them across the rocks or you're using, uh, you know, dry hands or a, or a glove that has like, that's super grippy, mm-hmm. you're taking that slime off. And not only that, can that per, um, cause disease and um, infection later on, but it also takes energy to rebuild that slime, Okay. right? I always think about, think about a fish as like, you know, their daily energy budget is, you know, they're out there fishing they're, or feeding, you know, and they're swimming upstream. And anytime that we exercise them, anytime that we take them out of the water, anytime that we, you know, remove some slime, they have to use energy to rebuild that slime. They have to right. use energy to rebuild the energetic resources uh, that that they use to fight against us. So the more that we can, you know, limit fight time, the more that we can r- reduce air exposure, the more that we can um, uh, avoid, you know, destroying some of their fins or right. wiping off the slime, you know, that, that, that there's better chances that they have uh, to recoup those costs once once we release them. Can can that slime get in their gills? Because I've seen some people say, oh, it's okay if you just leave one gill in the water and you have one gill out and then it's just breathing. I don't, I, I get that they cycle water through their gills in some fashion and they can extract they, oxygen. Yep. Um, I, I, I yep. guess it's a two-part question. From a scientific perspective, how do they breathe? And is there any truth to that to keeping the, uh, the one gill in the water? <laughs> okay. So that's a different question from the slide, but how about I pose the question okay. to you, Travis? Can I put you on the uh, spot? By all means. Can I put you on the spot? How do I, 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 I do this? I when I uh, I uh, I gave a presentation in Smithers uh, and I stood up on a ladder um, and uh, in a, in an angling shop and said, "Okay, I'm giving a talk about best practices for catch and release. I have a question for you. How do fish breathe?" Uh-huh. So, <laughs> oh, so for, and, for and all the angles are like whoa. So for me, how do fish breathe? I don't know. Um, yeah. They suck water in through their mouth and out through their gills or in through their gills and out through their mouth. And they somehow have uh, little things that can pick up the uh, uh, oxygen or extract it. That's uh, that's the best f- from my perspective. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but that's, and you're, and you're partway there, right? right? So that the, um, that the, the lamellae, the, the gill filaments that are in right. there are super fine. And there's a lot of blood, right? It's like the alveoli in our lungs, right. right? There's a lot of blood close to the surface where it allows for that that exchange of gases. Okay. But the the oxygen is dissolved in the water, right? We don't see right. it. Um, and so what happens is, and this is this is actually tied into um, some of the reflex impairments that we spoke about. You know, one reflex that we look for is the coordinated movement. I can't do it well on my plastic truck. But the coordinated movement of when the fish's mouth is open, what they do is they close their opercula, the gill the flaps cover, yeah. are closed. Yeah. yeah, they're closed. Okay. And what happens is then they clo- close their mouth and they open their percolate and it pushes water uh, in one yeah. direction from the mouth through the gills. And and that directional, that uh, that movement of water, directional water movement through the mouth and out the and out the gills is important. Because that works in opposite direction of the blood flow in the gills. Ah. And it's that it's that difference in flow rate that allows that dissolved oxygen to come out of solution to get into the blood. 
And so that that's that's a really important thing. And the other um, interesting thing about and so going to your point about having one gill out and you know the other gill right. in, it's okay. It's okay. They're still respiring a little bit, but they're probably not respiring to the same extent uh, that they were when they were fully submerged. Mm. And we can't forget. Usually after you've landed that fish, it has just fought. Its metabolism is way up high because it's got that blood glucose. It's that sugar high, that fight or flight response. And just like when we exercise, we're respiring more. Right. And so, what do we need? What do we need to do when we respire more? We more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you know, we're, we need we we're respiring more. We need that you know yeah. uh, because of that exercise. And so and so do fish, right? So that's the importance of keeping them in the water and trying to keep that those that water flow over their gills. We also can't forget, um, similar to us in a way, I mean, our lungs remove carbon dioxide. Right. Um, and the same, same thing for, for gills. But gills are also important for things like salt excretion, ion excretion. Okay. The gills of fish are, are, are a little bit more complex than our lungs in terms of gas exchanges, in terms of the 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 services that this, the, the gill organs provide. Right. And so that's, you know, from an auction standpoint, that's great. It's also why we like, we we kind of cringe when we see pictures, even when somebody's holding a nice little trout like this and their fingers are slipped under yes, the gill, yes. under the operculum and they're in the gills. Like those are super delicate organs. And, you know, keep your, keep your fingers away from the gills, you know, support the fish, you know, under the belly and, and around the, the sort of the, the caudal peduncle, the wrist. Um, you know, we have to be very protective of the gills for sure. And, and that's where, um, you know, that I think the, the 10 seconds or less in terms of air exposure is important, um, because the, uh, the, the fish are recovering from that stressful event mm -hmm. being angled. And we often are asked, you know, it, can I, can I do like, like eight seconds and then two seconds and then <laughs> go back and like, like, no, it's, it's cumulative because we also can't forget that fish are wild animals, mm. right? Like they don't, they don't want to be held for as much as we think we, they, <laughs> they want us to hold them and appreciate them. They, they want to get back to doing what they were doing. Mm. They're, they're, you're actually restraining that fish. Um, and so, you know, the more that we, um, and that's, you know, one of the principles, the, the third principle for the main principle for that key fish wet uses is, is minimize handling time. Okay. And it's not, and ha handling time is like, from the time, it's not the time that it's in your hands. It's the time that you've scooped it up in your net. Even if it's in a net, you're still handling it. You've restrained it, right? Um, and it's it's in a place where it doesn't want to be. Um, and so the more that we can do when we're when you've got a fish in your net or you have a fish at hand, you know, it, it goes back to uh, basic angler behavior and and just thinking ahead and making sure that you've got your pliers ready. Mm. You've got you know, you've, you're prepared to, to, you know, turn the hook. It's also why some of the tips that we include is one like using barbless hooks, right? You know, if, if you have, if you use barbless hooks, you know, there's, uh, there's some anglers that argue like, Oh, I'm going to catch fewer fish. Not really. I mean, if you, if you fight a fish, well, you're not going to lose right. it. Um, and, but what it does is it allows you to, to minimize handling time, it minimizes physical um, injury to the fish. Mm. It also minimizes the chances of you getting a hook with a barb in sure. it, having to dig it out of your face. Yep. 
uh, been, yeah, there. been there. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it's it's all those things coupled together and uh, thinking about the principles and tips and about how anglers can start to use those to to again minimize air exposure, keep it under ten seconds, reduce handling, uh, keep keep it keep your fish away from rough surfaces, and uh, and reduce handling time, mm-hmm. and collectively. All those things will, you know, the science is showing that it it increases the the uh, the likelihood that that fish is going to swim away healthy. Um, it's gonna the fish is going to go back to you know contributing to the population, and that population will be more resilient to all these other things that are impacting fish populations. So. Now you said you had a question asked of you about uh, net or tail grab. Did you come up? Uh, did your research show a preferred method? Yep. It actually, it's, it was a, it was a great, um, question and it was one that sh- we, we showed that it, uh, it took less time to actually land the fish when you're using a net, but the handling time tended to, <laughs> excuse me, tended to be longer. Ah. Um, hang on, I gotta just get a sip. Yeah. So when you can think about it, you get, you get your fish in the net. Um, and you feel that you have a chance to pause, which you kind of do. Um, and that increases the restraint time of that fish. Mm. And often too, what happens is like, even if you're using a barbless hook, sometimes the hook falls out. Or sometimes if you're using a, a, a fly with a trailing hook, it gets caught in the net as well. So you're trying to navigate all the net stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that results in is that fish being restrained longer. Right. So, um, so, and then the, the opposite of that was true for the tail grab that it took a little bit longer to land the fish, but it was, it, the, the, the handling time was so much less Mm. where you could, you know, grab onto the, to the wrist of the, the, the tail or the caudal peduncle. Mm -hmm. If the, if it was a barbless hook, you run your hand down the line, you turn the hook and you're already in the position if, you know, if you want that picture or whatever, and then you let it go. Um, and, and the outcome though, that even though there were differences in, um, handling time, um, the outcome, the scientific outcome showed there was, there was no difference. Um, one had a, one had a little bit more of a physiological response Mm. of being, being held longer. Um, but the overall outcome related to the fish that we put transmitters in, it, it really didn't make a difference. Um, and we, and we kind of like that, I guess, as an outcome, uh, it's important to reflect on it because, you know, there's some situations where it might be impossible to use a net, mm. or there might be some situations where it's, it's hard to, to tail grab a big fish and you have to use a net. Mm. And, and so when we, when Keyfish Wet, you know, conveys all these principles and tips, we know that there are nuances, uh, depending on the species, depending on where you're fishing. And we also recognize that it's an evolution. It's a personal evolution. The, the one thing that we, um, we really advocate for is constructive feedback, positive feedback, being, you know, we, we, we as an organization, as a as group of scientists and, and educators and everybody else involved, like, we don't want to shame other people, sure. like, because we were, we were all there once, mm-hmm. right? Like, we were all, you know, and, and I think that if we can use Keep Fish Wet as a vehicle to provide a, a consistent and persistent message related to these best practices for catch and release across all fisheries, um, that uh, then 
and we do it in a constructive way, then more people are going to adopt those best practices and that's going to change the social norm when it comes to the images that are posted on social media, when it comes to, you know, the, the images we see in film tours and all sorts of stuff that, you know, that and, and also the images that we see on the catalogs of some of the gear manufacturers, right? Like it's it's a, there's there's this this change that's needed. It doesn't necessarily re require regulations, mm -hmm. but it, it requires all of us recognizing that we play a role in the fate of these fish every time we handle one and understanding that subtle changes in our behavior can make a big difference. And if we all do it, then, you know, we're, we're, we're contributing to the, to the greater good. I, I have a, um, I, I would think that as a researcher and being very passionate about keep fish wet and what it does and, and trying to affect a social change, you'll probably find you end up in a bit of an echo chamber where the people around you, you start naturally surrounding yourself with other people who are like-minded, like values. Do you have a way of being able to measure whether the keep fish wet movement is being adopted and be able to kind of tweak it or not? Cause that, that's a, that's a, uh, an inter interest. That's a question from a, uh, maybe a selfish point of view. Is there a scientific way to see what effect that you're making through your efforts, either through social media or through your website? Cause that, that could also be applied to so many other things, whether it be business or, or anything, right? Absolutely. And, and luckily, um, we, uh, through my connection at UMass, there was a graduate student here who I managed to, uh, convince to do some work. She's a social scientist and a really good one. Okay. Uh, that looks at social signaling and um, and how uh, differences in terms of like the injunctive norms that 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 are, uh, that are portrayed in the community, how that ultimately is is influenced by messaging or influences messaging. Huh. And and uh, she is now on the board. She is now on the board of directors for Keep Fish Wet. And uh, cool. we uh, we were actually um, have done some studies um, that actually are still uh, in review, uh, where we're looking at how anglers perceive different images in social media and how they're, how they're linked to the best practices and if there's a disconnect and how we can ultimately change, whether it's the, the messaging or the images mm. or the, the, the tone to allow that message to be more inviting, um, to also see are there ways that we can accelerate change just by um, the the way that we communicate the information, um, and so the the one thing that I can say, and this this happened uh, a little bit before the transition uh, from keep them wet, which was a kind of a nebulous, sure, wasn't really a thing. It was kind of a movement to keep fish wet, which is a formal not for profit. Um, that uh, we had some students in my lab actually do a survey that looked at the, the number of times that the hashtag keep them wet was being used mm. and, and how it aligned to images. And, you know, since we started the movement and especially as keep fish wet started to become more established as a not-for-profit and as a, as, as the entity for these best practices, that, that use of the hashtag has gone up and there's more alignment in mm. when somebody uses the hashtag, it's not a fish that's bleeding and all that sort of stuff. There's yes, we still see that, mm. but 
and we're starting to see more alignment between um, the the use of the hashtag and um, and also how our information is being shared by other organizations mm. um, and and how we're partnering. So I think we're getting to the point um, where I think we're we've we've thought of a few other additional studies to try to address that question. Yeah. But um, that's something that that's something that will will continue to explore because it is a changing landscape. Um, that depending on what happens, um, so there's a campaign uh, that Keep Fish Wet did last year uh, that started it, or they started a campaign called No Fish Dry July. Okay. Um, and it, uh, the genesis behind that was the fact that, man, like July, August, that's when we're, all these big heat waves were happening out west. Uh, it's when there were super huge droughts and, you know, fish are ectotherms. And so their, you know, their body temperature is related to their mm -hmm. to the environmental temperature. And then also what happens as water temperature goes up, their metabolism goes mm. up. So if their metabolism is going through the roof and then we fish them, you know, they, there's a greater likelihood of, of fish dying because of being caught right. um, at high water temperatures. So we, we, um, this campaign was started to basically change social norms and say, and, and, and change the narrative. Like we know this is a factor, you know, from a social media perspective, let's show us pictures in July that don't have to do with the fish. Mm. Show us pictures in July about the environment or your fishing buddy or something about that, that captures that the essence of why you go fishing apart from the getting the hero shot right. and having to take the picture and, and the handle. Grip and, grin. and that, and that, the gripper grin and and that took off. We had we had such great engagement tied to no fish dry July, um, and just as a hint, that will be happening again. <laughs> um, and 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 it'll actually be bigger and greater. And um, and I think that that um, you know I, I think there's more and more evidence that um, many more organizations and clubs and uh, different groups and, and industry partners are coming to us to, um, uh, to ask advice and to partner, to, to, to per basically, um, have to build that community, the broader community that, that does, it's not just the anglers, it's everybody that's involved in the mm -hmm. angling industry that, that needs to, um, you know, basically, um, recognize that, collectively we can be agents of change as an individual you can be an agent of change positive change but then collectively um, if we all start following these same patterns that we can have a, a much greater effect on the future of our recreational fisheries that is amazing and i and i really love the empowerment of the individual because so many people think that you need a government organization or an ngo or some group just to that they can, they can co-opt all of their responsibilities to, and that's not how it works. It just, that's a, a suck for money. And you, at some point you'll be looking at the easy answer and the easy answer is just shut it all down. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's, and it's, it's not one or the other, right. like we need sure. both, right? It's, it's all part of the puzzle. Um, and sort of the top down, uh, you know, um, policy change approach, management change, that's all needed. But that's not that's not going to save it all, right? There has to be the grassroots. There has to be the individual responsibilities. There has to be um, that connection with the fish and the passion, and and that 
you know, and we need to look at look at ourselves in the mirror a little bit more and be like, yep, I I know that if I handle a fish, you know, out of the water for too long, or if I'm jamming my fish up the gills, that you know what science is showing, what Keyfish Wet is demonstrating is that's not good. Um, that a behavioral change is not going to cost me any more money. But guess what? I'm going to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. And and we also start in, in more broadly. We're also starting to see, and this is just an anecdote. I think more and more anglers that have got that have really sort of um, wrapped around, wrapped their arms around these ideas about best practices for catch and release and their personal responsibility, are also becoming more receptive of their responsibility for like habitat loss mm -hmm. and recycling and and their and their role in climate change and their role and so. It's kind of like a gateway, not a drug, but it's a gateway into the minds of anglers and, and um, that, you know, their personal action does influence things, mm. right? Both negatively and positively. Sure. And, and if, we, if, we, if we so cherish our recreational fisheries and we so cherish the watersheds that they're in um, and, you know, both for our well-being and for, you know, the economy and other things then, you know, then we, we needs to start with individual actions um, with those fish that we're encountering every time you go fishing. It also still means you have to, you know, be an activist and an advocate, you know, when you see something that's wrong in, and or you're looking for change in uh, policy, you get out and vote and you get out and, um, you know, voice your concerns, but you don't just leave it there. You, you can't forget that there's personal responsibility that's, that's also needed. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, I think that, and, and I, it, out of, I don't know, and, and maybe somebody convince can convince me otherwise, but I think, um, with, with recreational fisheries, it's the one activity where we engage with nature, where we have that, um, really acute responsibility with those fish that we're handling, where we can like, choose to catch it and release it or choose to catch it and keep it if it's of a harvestable species. And then based on our behavior, we can affect the outcome of that fish mm -hmm. when you release it. You know, if you think about bird watching or hiking, you know, like there's, there's different ways we engage with nature where we're maybe not. And, and if you go hunting, you're hunting usually to like <laughs> harvest the animal, right. right? You know, unless, unless, unless you, you know, there's some other, I've seen, there's also people anyway, we won't get sure, there. Sure. Topic, but, um, you know, but it's the the mo the motivations behind recreational angling are pretty diverse, mm -hmm. um, but they but they do involve the fact that there has to be fish in the water, otherwise the sport goes away. Um, and and there is that connection back to personal responsibility, and and that's where keep fish wet comes in, and and I think that's also where keep fish wet, uh, based on the traction that we've been getting throughout the broader global angling community mm -hmm. um, that uh, we're, we're recognizing and other people are recognizing that um, the, the scientific based best practices are the best ones because, you know, there's been a lot of investment and, and that the, the science is, is done objectively mm -hmm. um, and feeds back into uh, the best practices that sh that a hundred percent demonstrate that where we know with some confidence that it has a positive effect. If you do this, it has a positive effect. Mm. 
Um, and, and I think that that's where, um, you know, there's, there's lots of other groups and lots of other government agencies, NGOs that are putting out best practices. But if you look at the genesis behind those best practices, they're anecdotes, they're maybe not based on science, they're, they're, they're developed in other ways. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they're all wrong, but it, I, I think what I've experienced over the last 20 years is that what the angling community really needs is that consistent and persistent message mm -hmm. um, because it makes it easier to remember the information. It makes it easier to remember the principles and tips. It makes it easier when you're going from trout to, to bass, to striped bass, to whatever. Mm -hmm. if, the, if the principles are all sort of unified, it just makes it easier to employ them as an angler. Um, and you're not, and you're not getting mixed messages from different groups. And, and I think that's where, uh, key fish wet is, is, is really accelerating mm. and, and being that, that, uh, filling that niche of being that providing that consistent and persistent message, um, for the angling community. So, so what about detractors out there? Are there any people out there that take a look at the work that keep fish wet is I, I was in my research in here, there was a, um, Idaho, I think it was, or is a group that put something out that uh, had some contrary opinions, but that was an older sort of, uh, yep. uh, paper. Has that one been, uh, refuted or, or <laughs> should we talk about that one? Well, so, so no, that's fine. And, and we don't, you know, I, I don't want to knock the science. Mm. Um, and you know, that, that, that paper made it through peer review and, and that's, mm. you know, that's part of the process. Um, but I, and, and there is, there are some studies that show for certain species, it isn't as much of an impact. Right. Um, but there's so many different species that we target and there's so many different environmental variables that are to, to be taken right. into consideration. Right. And so, you know, and, and if you, you know, there's been probably now, if you do the math, there's probably maybe close to 500 studies that have been done on catch and release, mm. Right. If one shows that it's not an impact, are you going to trust the one or the 499? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? So, and that's, you know, I think that's the approach that I take, like that, you know, there's, so we just did a, um, a study on a giant trevally yep. in the Seychelles mm -hmm. and we use some cool uh, accelerometer loggers. They're kind of like the Fitbits mm -hmm. on your, that we wear to look at tail yeah. frequencies. It's a really cool technology. And that science showed that uh, even 30 seconds of air exposure uh, didn't really impact the post-release fate of of GTs in, in the fly fishing mm. fishery and, and Alphonse. It doesn't mean that um, we should still go to that 30 seconds because, um, you know, if you're fishing in another location where there may be more predators, um, mm -hmm. it just showed that, that in that context, um, zero seconds of air exposure, 10 seconds of air exposure, and 30 seconds of air exposure all kind of showed the same stuff. And, and it demonstrated that GTs are pretty resilient. Mm. Um, and, and there's been some other studies that are, have been done on uh, fish out of the same family. Permit um, uh, are also, um, from, <clears throat> from a physiological standpoint, um, they're, they're pretty hardy okay. of, of a species when it comes to being caught and handled. But with permit, if you're catching them out of a spawning aggregation and that spawning aggregation has attracted a whole bunch of sharks, right. it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter if that fish is like super resilient to being caught and handled. It's got to now swim through this gauntlet <laughs> of, of predators, mm. right? So the context is important. And I think that's also where a lot of, um, 
a lot of the science is going. We're thinking about the context dependent um, analyses, like, you know, looking at the same species during low water times of year, low flow, high water temperature, high flow, cold temperatures, you know, trying to find those species specific um, best practices so we can we can hone right. things a little bit more beyond beyond just the general principles and tips. Um, and we're getting there. So like um, keep fish wet uh, based on uh, the striped bass fishery uh, put out a separate campaign related to best practices for for um, for striped mm. bass uh, because there has been some science. And so there's a there's a species specific campaign. It's still we still fall back on the, the general principles and tips. But there's some additional things we need to consider when it comes to striped bass. And we're getting there for more and more, more and more species. Um, but you know, I'm glad you brought up that study. And, and yes, we also do like when, when we, um, I, so <laughs> it's maybe too much information. <laughs> I'm basically, I'm, ba I'm basically the uh, unpaid social media intern mm. for Keep Fish Wet. Uh, and, uh, but it's fun. Yeah. And, uh, but last year when we, when we launched, uh, no fish dry July. Um, there was a lot of interesting comments. Mm. They're like, yeah, I don't keep my fish dry. I put it on the grill, you know, sure, and it's like, sure. okay, that's awesome. Then you're not, you don't, have you read the post? No, you just looked at no fish dry July. Yeah, yeah. And there's always, there's, there's always going to be, um, people that I think, um, don't quite relate with the the fact that even if you're catching fish and you're harvesting fish if there's a regulation mm -hmm. um that you're going to be releasing fish um there's there's always a lot of people that i find that like to point fingers at other people sure. as being the problem um but i think collectively over time if there's this evolution of enough of us uh that you know the social norms will change and, and, and as we're fighting the big fights about policy change and other things that at least we know that, uh, we can feel good about each individual angler taking care of fish, um, that, uh, that they plan to release. Um, and, and I think, and I think that makes it, I, I think the approach that keep fish wet takes is much more accessible, um, than if it were that is the same information coming from a government agency, because, you know, for instance, because a government agency is is the, also the agency you pay your fishing right. license fee to that that could also give you a, a yeah. ticket or take your stuff away, um, and so you know keeping it out as a as a non government organization as a separate entity that that and we've had other government agencies or government agencies come to mm -hmm. us for guidance in terms of best practices yeah. to partner with us. We've had other groups coming to us more and more, um, and that's where like we're actually we have. We have we have more people coming to us than we can keep up, or we're trying to keep up, which is great. I mean, to me, that's a reflection that it's working. Um, Keep fish wet is is sure. working. It's on the mark, um, and you know, you know, during No Fish Dry July, Trout Unlimited picked it up and said, "This is awesome." They wrote pieces about No Fish Dry July. Um, you know, Fly Fishing International, like yeah. there's all these bigger groups that are recognizing that what Keep Fish Wet is doing has incredible value and uh, and actually the the engagement um, and the opportunities for engagement are increasing and that the 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 distance between suggesting behavioral change and making behavioral change is really short mm. right you just need that sort of recognition by the individual but like wow 
I've, I, these scientists have shown that, you know, by minimizing air exposure and keeping it less than 10 seconds, I'm going to be doing a better part for each fish. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And if you, and you embody that, um, then you know that you, you have confidence in that behavioral change and you're more likely going to do it. Totally. Right. Um, if we're able to demonstrate that. So um, I, I think collectively there's a, I think, I think there's a strong future for keeping. Awesome. I, I've got a couple easy questions. Uh, so you go into the fishing sure. store and they've got a couple different types of nets. One's going to be your yeah. fabric net and one's going to be kind of your rubbery net. Uh, the rubber net's going to cost you more money than the fabric net. And people look at this and say, do I spend the more money? Does it make a big difference? What should I do? What's, what's your perspective? Absolutely. Luckily, we've done some, there's been some science done on different nets and uh, the, the flat rubberized net makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the Walmart, Kmart, Canadian Tire Special uh, <laughs> that uh, is the knotted nylon, yeah. you know, the, that, that results in uh, more fin fraying. It can actually get behind the gills. Mm -hmm. It can do gill damage. Um, it is much more impactful than... Uh, a flat rubberized net um, that is relatively slick when it gets wet. Um, there's less opportunities for uh, fins to get through the mm. holes. Um, there's there's enough science. If you can if you can afford it uh, or you save up for it, um, then um, you know a, a rubberized net is uh, is uh, will result in fewer injuries. Okay. Here's another easier one. Uh, let's say for let's say for steelhead. What uh, yep. I'm looking at, um, you're talking about physiological responses that the fish will have, and you named a couple of them, like the eyes tracking the horizon. Are you able to yeah, kind of yeah. give a, a a quick point form of the uh, of a few of these physiological responses that people should be looking for? The reflex impairments, reflex, absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. So the reflex impairments, um, the the uh, the big one for us that I think is the easiest is uh, at the end, when you're ready, to, if, if you say you've got it um, close to you and if, if you can start to roll it and it rolls over on its own, it, that writing reflex yeah. relatively quickly, it's, it's, that's, it's, it's, it's got enough coordinated movement, it's got enough of its faculties to recognize that it's upside down and it can do that coordinated movement to bring itself back okay. up. Um, the other one is that they, um, the, we call it the head complex and that's that, oops, um, that's the, the coordinated movement between the, the, the mouth moving and the gills. Okay. Moving, right? right. So that, that, so if, if the mouth is going like this and you have coordinated movement with the gills, that means it's trying to move more water over its gills. So mouth closed, gills Ideally, open. Yeah. And, and in sort of that combination, that, un, that right. sequence, um, ideally with the steelhead, right, you're in moving water. Uh, to help with that recovery, you want to, you know, put the put the head of the fish into the water flow mm. um, so that you have the water going in the mouth and out the gills, not the other way around. <laughs> sure. um, and um, so we've got um, the other one that the uh, so we've got um, the oh, the the other ones that we do. And it really depends on the species is uh, one called um, uh, body flex. So if you start to take your weight, say, say you have the fish in the water and you start to um, uh, use your arms to reduce the weight, the gravity that the fish is yeah. feeling, does it flex its body or is it just like, oh, right? Is it just limp? So body flexes is one that, that um, anglers can also use. 
Um, and then also it, depending, so say, pretend you have your fish uh, and it's kind of harder with, with uh, steelhead because you also don't want them to start to run sure. again. But this, we, we do this for smaller species where you can actually, if you start to like pinch their tail a little bit, are they trying to kick away, mm. right? If, if you start pinching their tail yeah. and, and you have that, that tail reflex. Um, so we've got loss of equilibrium or, or how quickly it can take to regain equilibrium. We've got the, the mouth and gills, so the head complex. Um, we've got body flex, we've got tail grab. Yep. And then the other one I talked about is that the, um, the eye rolling, mm -hmm. um, that one we've shown in, in some studies that if that eye does not roll and it does, there's some species where the eye will never roll, sure. it depends on the species. Um, but, and, and I, I had a great photo come in today from the person that does social media for fulling Okay. Milk. And, uh, um, he's actually also a guide in, uh, in New Hampshire, and he sent a picture of this fish, and 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 it's a close up, but you can see that the fish, the fish is on an angle, but its eye is tracking the horizon. Mm. So you know that that fish, that that fish's brain, and it's physiologically, it's like dialed in, and it's like, I don't want to be rolled over. I want to go back that mm -hmm. way. Um, you know, that's another really good indicator, and and it's you know, and some of these indicators, um, depending on water temperature, depending on the size of the fish. They might be harder to, to measure or harder to look at, but I think anglers need to do the best they can with some of these, some of these reflex impairments because it'll tell you if the fish is ready to go or if it's not. Mm. So say you, say you like, you know, you, you roll your, uh, we, we hear and see so many examples of um, the uh, people that are holding on for fish for a long time and thinking, I'm going to hold on to it for another five minutes because the more I hold it, the better it gets. And the fish is like right. this. And they're like, I'm trying to hold it. I'm going to do this fish better by holding <laughs> on. This drive. So my, my, my wife, Sasha, is the executive director for Keep Fish yeah. Wet. And, um, and, and that, that's one thing that uh, is, is a really pet peeve of hers. And it actually is a pet totally. peeve of mine, but more of hers. In, in that like this whole idea, like holding on to a fish longer is going to be better for that fish. It's not always the case. If it's, if, if it's got you know good apercular movement, um, if you go like this and in two seconds, it's like this, you know, like get it, get it on its way. Sure. As long as there's no predators around, you're not in the salt, like do yourself, do the fish a favor and get it on it way, <laughs> its way. It doesn't need to be recovered more. Um, certain species like, I mean, you know, billfish, tarpon, big things that are like fight to exhaustion. Sometimes they need more recovery. Mm. Um, but this is also when like if you're fishing with a guide or you're on a chat with uh, a chat group on social media, Facebook, or whatever, you know, try to, before we even go fishing for a new species, look at the different techniques that people are using to recover fish, Ref compare those to compare those to the best practices that Keep Fish Wet conveys and be like, okay, now I know for, when I'm going to go for sailfish, you know, it's actually in the southern part of the United States, it's illegal to take them out of the water. Uh, yeah. But, you know, if, if that fish needs to be recovered longer, you know, I'm going to probably be working with that boat captain to basically be keeping that fish's head into the current. We're going to run the boat until it's, you know, got its reflexes and then we can let it go. What do you see as the future for catch and release? Yeah, I think, I think the future in the short term is that, um, I think, and this seems kind of, uh, maybe a little bit, um, I, I don't, I, it's not 
jaded. I and, and it's not. I think that there's based on the uptake and the ease of uptake for these scientifically generated best practices for catch and release. You know, I think there's a strong future for keep fish wet in terms of being that persistent and consistent message across all these different fisheries. I think that there's a greater growing awareness that individual responsibility is important, especially with all these other impacts that are happening to fish populations. Mm. I keep going back to the big elephant in the room, climate change, sure. right? You know, last year, last year it was droughts. This year we've got massive floods that are closing out Yellowstone, uh, right? And I think those floods are also hitting um, Alberta and Saskatchewan, right? Like um, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, that, that understand, given that our watersheds and our global ecosystem are under all these other pressures, um, I think that more and more people are asking, you know, how can I play a role? How can I uh, help be a, be a, um, a, an agent of change? Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's, and, and I'd also see that more and more people are maybe being, becoming a bit more disheartened about like policy change mm -hmm. and the rate at which those changes happen, taking down the dams and the snake mm -hmm. river, right? We're fighting for that pebble mine. Mm -hmm. It's all important to fight for, right? We're all important to do that, but it takes time. It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. And I think that more and more groups and people within this sort of recreational fishing community are recognizing the value of each fish that are in their hands. And that through those basic changes in behavior that we can, we can actually um, have a great benefit on the future of, of that individual fish. And that contributes to greater resiliency in the face of all these other threats. Um, so I, you know, and, and yes, there are places where, um, you know, and, and a concern that gets into this, and again, this could be a topic for even another podcast, <laughs> um, when you get in sort of animal welfare and do fish feel pain, we haven't really touched on that. Um, and, um, you know, I'm going to say yes, I, I think that there's, <laughs> well, they, 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 well, they, again, another okay. podcast, cause there's so much okay. to go into that. Um, but there's some places like in Germany, catch and release is illegal. Uh, because they feel that there's, uh, that law was put in place because, uh, it was felt that if you're catching a fish, um, uh, you've caused enough distress in it that it, it's inhumane to put it back. Mm. So you have to dispatch the fish. Mm. Um, but when you, but I've, I've had casual conversations with a lot of people that fish in Germany and they, they call it the oops factor and they basically, they they know that the fish is better in the water. They don't mm -hmm. need to, they don't want to dispatch the fish. Oops, and they, I dropped as it. As they're handling the oh, I dropped yep. it. And yeah, you know, and um, and I've actually heard some anecdotes from people that um for that were actually um caught for practicing catch and release, and they took it to court. Don't I just don't sure, don't sure. anybody quote me. I, <laughs> I, heard, I heard it from I heard it from yeah, somebody. Yeah. I read um, it on the internet. But, that, but even <laughs> yeah, but even that, but even the judge kind of threw it out. Mm. And like, if you can argue that that the value of that fish is so much more important in the water, contributing to a healthy ecosystem, you know that. And if you're using best practices for catch and release, and you're minimizing stress on that fish, you know, then um, you know maybe you know catch and release does have an important place. And 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 I think it does. And and going full circle mm -hmm. back to like. You know, the the uh, the conversation that I've at the beginning of a presentation in, in Connecticut here about like 
talking to the meat fishers versus the mm -hmm. people that practice catch and release, we all do it. Mm -hmm. it we we all, all do it, you know, and, and I think we all do it. And, and, um, and if, and if you're, if you're practicing to catch, to keep, and you're, you're not putting back an undersized fish, that's, what's going to get you in mm -hmm. trouble. Right. Um, that's where, you know, that's why the laws are, are put in place and the regulations are put in place. Um, and I, I think what I'm also seeing is that, you know, since, uh, keep fish wet rebranded, uh, or keep fish as, as a not-for-profit that I'm actually seeing more and more, uh, angler groups that are predominantly meat fishers, mm. um, basically starting to say that, wow, we're playing a role and these best practices are important. And of course, you know, we're, we're going to be a part of the solution. Um, it doesn't mean, and, and we, we're, we're quite open about this on, on the, on the website. Like we like to eat fish and we harvest fish sometimes sure. too. Like when it's legal to, when it's legal to do so, you know, we, we like to harvest fish. We're not, we're not taking a, a, a very super hard stand and say, you got to release everything you catch. Otherwise you're a bad person. Right. It's like, wow, if, you know, it's, if for, for those fish that you intend to release, if you use these scientifically based best practices, those fish have a better chance of survival. And we're just, then, then you're part of the solution to helping to keep those populations healthy and safe. So. Andy, I am so glad you're able to make the time to be on the Silver Core podcast and very thankful to Pat for making the recommendation and pointing me in your direction. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Travis, no problem. It was a great being here and, uh, and I enjoyed passing on what I know and, uh, yeah. And I look forward to being back on. Oh, you time. will be. 